Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Spring Meadows Adult Sunday School. We're continuing our study on the attributes of God. This is week three. Uh, last week, we learned about the attribute of aseity. So the doctrine of a di divine aseity states that God exists a se. That's Latin for from himself, in himself, or of himself. So we learned that God is all-sufficient in himself, and he is independent of all things outside of himself. His existence is not derived or impacted from any outside source. And one of the reasons for that lesson was so that we could establish a creator-creation distinction, okay? Um, this week, during this week's lesson, uh, I'm not going to stop in the middle for questions. We're going to wait till the very, very end because I've got so much I want to cover. I want to make sure we get it all in. Uh, so no questions except one exception. If in one of our fill-in-the-blanks on my handout, you don't know how to spell a word, say, Mark, how do you spell that? So uh, let's go ahead and pray. Oh, God, we desire to know you and to see you as you are and the only way that happens is if your Holy Spirit works in our hearts in our midst this morning so we pray that you would help us to do that that you might be glorified we pray in Jesus name amen so R.C. Sproul once asked was asked what made reformed theology unique and he answered in Reformed Protestant theology, all other theology is seen in relation to the doctrine of God. That every other area on which the Bible teaches is seen in relation to the doctrine of God. So all doctrines come after in relation to the doctrine of God. He says, we don't develop a doctrine such as how people are saved and then are, let our conclusions back into who we say God is we start with who God is. And the Trinitarian theologian Thomas Aquinas writes, God is greater than all we can say, greater than all we can know. And not merely does he transcend our language and our knowledge, but he is beyond the comprehension of every mind whatsoever, even of angelic minds, and beyond the being of every substance. And understanding that is helpful because today we're going to be looking at the second of God's incommunicable attributes. And yes, we are still in the Himalayas of Christian doctrine. I like to use metaphors because the Bible uses metaphors. So this is, this is high and heady stuff. So today we'll be looking at the attribute of a divine simplicity or just simplicity. And one of the important things about this lesson, this lesson involves a lot of grammar of speech about God. So when we're looking at God and you're asking questions about God or you're reading about God, it's good to understand the grammar of God. Here's a real simple example. In the Trinity, we have one what and three who's. The what is what we're studying, the attributes, the essence, the nature, the one God. Three who's, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So. Simple grammar, but uh, I'll be re reinforcing that as we go along. So this is number one in your handout. The Christian church has, for over 1,600 years, 
been affirming theologically and liturgically as a key summary of its faith a document called the Nicene Creed. It is the common denominator of Christian orthodoxy, which means straight doctrine. It's also the common denominator of Trinitarian doctrine. And a key component is the doctrine of simplicity. Okay, simplicity is, is in the Nicene Creed. This and other creeds were developed to prevent heresy from entering the church. So, in simplicity, by simple, we don't mean that God is dim-witted or that he's easy to understand. Simple is a technical philosophical term meaning not composed of parts. This is number two in your handout. The doctrine of divine simplicity is the teaching that God, unlike his creation, is not composed, not composed of parts. God isn't made up of stuff that is more fundamental or, or ultimate than he is. So what we mean by parts is anything that is less than God and without which God, the whole, would be different from himself. So God is not a product of parts forming themselves into unity. The essence of God is not a cocktail of attributes where we have one part justice, two parts wisdom, and three parts love. God is one. He has no distinct or separate parts that can in any way conflict with each other. So, for example, there's no tension between his wrath and his love. This is number three in your handout. God is not a compound, a composite or mixture. And really, the opposite of simple is compound, okay? It's not complex, it's compound. So God is not compound, a composite or mixture. He is simple. God is an absolutely unified, indivisible spiritual being. In short, there's nothing in God that isn't identical to God. Nothing in God not identical to God. The simplicity of God means he's not partly this and partly that. But ever, whatever he is, he is so entirely. So God's not a mixture of justice, wisdom, and love. He is wisdom, justice, and love. Every attribute of God is identical with his essence. So he's not an abstract, absolute idea who just happens to have love, wisdom, and holiness, as if we first conceive of a being called God and then we relate these qualities to him. Rather, God, in his very essence, within himself and by himself, does that sound like a seity to you? That's, that's, what, that's why we have a seity first. God is within himself and by himself. He is love, wisdom, and holiness. So this is number four in your handout. God is whatever he has. He's not the composite of his attributes. God is a simple being without parts or pieces. His attributes do not stick to him. He is, he is what they are. So God's goodness, for example, is not a standard above him to which he conforms. Rather, his goodness is everything that he is and does. It is God himself who serves as the standard as goodness for himself and for the world. He is, therefore, his own goodness. This is number five on your handout. Each attribute describes the whole nature of God. So to talk of God's attributes is simply to talk about God himself 
from various human perspectives, okay? God is simple. There can't be any real distinction between one essential property and another in God's nature. So, if God is identical to his attributes, it follows that all of God's attributes must be one and the same property. And that property must be God. All that is in God is God. So I guess you could call his essence Godness. That's what he, if you want to know what God is made of, it's Godness. That's, that's really the main attribute. So it's really kind of ironic that in a, a study of God attributes that we learn that divine simplicity means that God is not made up of his attributes. This means that God's attributes are perspectives for human minds, ways of looking at or encountering or describing him. It means that the attributes in God are identical and that God is rather than has his attributes. It means that all the attributes are attributes of all the other attributes. So to illustrate this, R.C. Sproul says, for example, when we say God is immutable, we are saying that his immutability is an eternal immutability, an omnipotent immutability, a holy immutability, a loving immutability, etc. By the same token, his love is an immutable love, an eternal love, an omnipotent love, a holy love, etc. And this is number six on your handout. If God were composed of parts, he would be dependent, dependent upon those parts for his very being, and thus the parts would be ontologically or fundamentally prior to him. So, for example, there could be nothing such as love prior to God. Love did not predate God's existence. There isn't a bank or repository of attributes that God relies on to pick out and stick to himself and compose himself to be God. This is number seven on your handout. Simplicity protects the aseity or independence of God, which says that God's being, this, this part's not in your handout, his essence depends on nothing outside of itself. Here's number seven. Simplicity denies that God has parts or is like a comp completed Lego set because this would imply that God participates in things that are outside of the divine nature of, as part of his essential being. So, what if God was composed of parts? Just imagine goodness as a part of God's character such that it was not identical to him but in some way was one part of his character. What now must be true of his goodness? And the answer is, since it, must not, it would not be identical to him, it must be something other than him. If it is something other than him, then it must be something outside of him, and it existed before him. And not only that, and this is number eight on your handout, if God is essentially good and goodness is not identical to him, then he depends on goodness to be who he is essentially. Thus God would be dependent on something besides himself and outside of himself in order to be who he is in being. Were that the case, God would not be ah say. He would not be from himself. He could not be independent. 
So parts indicate dependence. And all the attributes build on one another. You know, that's why we start with the saity. Second lesson is simplicity. And I guarantee you, once you have these two attributes under your belt, man, it is clear sailing the rest of the way. Okay, but it's important to get these uh, wrapped around in our, our heads. So because God depends on nothing that is not God to be God, he is therefore not composed of parts, and he also doesn't move from one state of being to the next. He doesn't move from passivity to activity in response to his creation, for example. He is. He is. This is known as the doctrine of immutability, which is we're going to talk about in Lesson 5. Um, Christian philosophers would say that he is not being, I mean, he is not becoming. He is pure being. Okay? He never changes. He's not becoming anything. He doesn't change. He doesn't improve. He doesn't decrease. So a being that by nature is not composed cannot be decomposed. One that has no parts cannot be torn apart. So God has absolute simplicity with no possibility of being divided. He is literally indivisible. And that is why there was not a vacancy in the Trinity at the Son's incarnation, okay? You can't decompose the unity, the nature, the oneness of God. So the doctrine of simplicity acknowledges that God is beyond our comprehension since finite creatures cannot imagine reality or being without composition or parts. So when we speak in fragmented terms about God, such as attributes, that fragmentation is part of our human perspective. How we learn about his divine nature rather than being part of the divine essence. And this is number nine on your handout. So if someone wrongly, wrongly suggests that love is the true nature of God, while omnipotence or holiness are only minor attributes of God, that would be a common error, and one which the doctrine of simplicity would have us avoid. You might hear people say, well, God may have justice or wrath, but he is love. The incorrect implication there is that love is more central to the nature of God, more true to his real identity than other less essential attributes. But this is incorrectly to imagine God as a composite being instead of a simple being. Now it's perfectly highlight, appropriate to highlight the love of God when didactic portions of scripture make it such a central theme. But the declaration God is love shouldn't carry any more weight than God is light or God is spirit or God is a consuming fire or scriptural statements about God's goodness, kindness, omniscience, holiness, or etc. Augustine put it simply, God is what he has. So we've established that God is not divided into parts. Yet we see so many different attributes of God emphasized at different times. So we must remember in the rest of our study when we're looking at these attributes that God's whole being is all of his attributes. Now, usually when you're talking about the doctrine of simplicity, it includes the doctrine of unity, okay? So... 
Admittedly, Christianity is a philosophically difficult religion. Not only are we asked to believe that God is three persons in one substance, but we're also to believe that God has taken on a human nature such that one person is both God and man. It's a difficult doctrine indeed. So, and this is number 10 on your handout, Christians are monotheists, one God, the belief that there is only one God. So in what respect is God one? The answer is, God is one in respect of his nature and being, one essence, one divinity, one power, one will, one intellect, one energy, one authority, one dominion, one sovereignty. So how many is the Lord? One. Deuteronomy 6, 4. The, the uh, ancient Hebrew Shema says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. By the way, that's also in the New Testament, in Mark 12, 29. And this is number 11 on your handout. So God is numerically one being. God is one being, okay? Scripture reveals that there are in that one divine essence three eternal distinctions that are described as persons, known as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three have identical attributes, and therefore they are one, not merely in substance or essence, but also one in purpose and will. Okay? There are not three wills in the Trinity. What would we call that? That's tritheism, okay? Each person is completely God. Each is God's in, indivisible essence. This is number 12 on your handout. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit each occupy the same divine space. Okay, that's a metaphor. We know that God is spirit. He doesn't, but I'm trying to get you to see that the divine space, they occupy that same essence, this, that, that, that one nature. Each shares the same eternal being. The Father dwells in the Son, and the Son dwells in the Father. Father and Son dwell in the Spirit, who in turn indwells the Father and Son. The unity of God is the three persons in their mutual interpenetration, often referred to as perichoresis. That's a Greek word. Um, Peri meaning around, and Croesus meaning dance. So it's the divine dance of the three persons in the unity of God. And by using the term perichoresis, I don't mean it the way that some might use it. We would call these people social trinitarians. Comparing things that socially bind humans together, such as interrelatedness, love, empathy, mutual accord, mutual giving, they are one in essence, and there is one being, not three. So the essence of God is not divided by the persons of the Trinity. The personal properties of the three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are not separable from God himself. And so that's why the essence of God is not divided by the incarnation of the Son. There was no vacancy in the Trinity when Jesus assumed a human nature so that there was two-thirds of the Trinity left. God is indivisible. This is number 13 on your handout. 
The Trinity is not made of parts as if they were so many slices of a pizza. The Father, Son, and Spirit are not divisions or composite parts in the Godhead. There's some Trinitarian grammar for you, Godhead. They don't combine together to add up to God. It's not as though the Father equals one-third of God and the Son another third and the Spirit the remaining third. So to say that each person of the Trinity doesn't have the entire nature of God, but only together do they make up God is to wrongly introduce composition into God. So let's talk about personhood. What is that all about? This is number 14 on, on your handout. So the only way to explain how threeness remains one is simplicity. The doctrine of divine simplicity protects the integrity and the unity of God's essence and prevents us from calling personality or personhood a divine attribute. We must hold to the unity of the divine essence as well as the distinction. That's a big word. The distinction of persons in the unity. There is distinction, okay? So the description persons, when we talk about the Trinity, should not be understood as we might analyze the term in common usage today, where in order to be a person, you, have, you must be a unique and discrete individual separated from other persons with a unique consciousness and will. R.C. Sproul says, the term person does not mean a distinction in essence, but a different subsistence. S-U-B, S-I-S-T-E-N-C-E, in the Godhead. The word person is equivalent to the word subsistence, okay? In this word, we have the prefix sub with the root word sisto. So subsistence literally means to stand under, okay? Each person of the Trinity subsists or exists under the pure essence of deity. Subsistence is a difference within the scope of being, not a separate being or essence. All the persons in the Godhead have all the attributes of deity. Ordinarily, I would take a break here and answer questions, but we got too much to cover. Uh, so all three persons of the Trinity must be described as having not only coessence, but also co-equality and coexistence. The persons are distinguished from each other. Distinction and distinguishing them is great, but not divided. They coexist as one God in simplicity of being, equal in rank, equal in power, equal in glory, equal in majesty. If God were divisible, we might be tempted to veer off into tritheism. That's where you have three gods. The one uncompounded simple being exists in three persons, not three people. So the term person ultimately indicates this one is not that one, okay? Hence the term person does signify real distinction. This is number 15 on your handout. So the easiest way to distinguish the three persons of the Trinity is how they eternally relate to one another, their interrelatedness, okay? By the Father's paternity, by the Son's generation, and by the Spirit's procession or being sent. They can also be distinguished by their names. 
but they exist from eternity in each other, not separate from and alongside each other. Each of the three persons is distinct. Okay, distinct person, all the while being identical and equal to the one God. There is distinction, there is difference, and there is identity. But you wouldn't say Jesus is part of God. We say Jesus is God. Unfortunately, the, uh, the language of persons has given away to conceptions like uh, each person is a distinct uh, people, you know. This is number 16 on your handout. The Christian view of God is, as the Athanasian Creed states, we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. That's where people have a lot of heresy when they start dividing the substance of the Trinity. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, another of the Holy Ghost, but the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Ghost is all one, the glory co-equal, the majesty co-eternal. So, the acts of the Trinitarian persons in their being, their eternal relations, must be differentiated from their doing, their common, common outward actions toward creation. And we talked a little bit about this last time, I think. Hopefully we can make it a little bit clear here. And this is number 17 on your handout. First, let's talk about being. Being, the ontological trinity. Some people, when you're reading, they may use the word imminent trinity, which just, just means they are imminent, they're close to each other. But that just can be confusing when we talk about, you know, God being imminent and transcendent. So it's easier just to, I'll give you an easier way to think about it here in just a second. Okay. The ontological trinity in being refers to the one God as he is in himself beyond and above all created time. The trinity is the persons exist with in their eternal relations to each other, their inner life, okay? Also known as opera ad intra, and I really want you to get that term under your belt, okay? Opera ad intra, a Latin phrase which means the inner acts of God, and this is the focus of our study. When we're looking at the attributes, we're looking at God ad intra. What, is, what are these attributes we see about the essence of God without looking at extra. Well, let's take a look and see what add extra means. Because the acts are differentiated from being and doing, number 18 is doing. This is the economic trinity. So we have the ontological trinity in being. The economic trinity in doing refers to the roles that each person displays in the external outworking of God's plan in regard to creation. This is also known as opera ad extra. So if someone makes a statement about God, I would, one of the things we might ask, do you mean ad intra or out extra? You see how this grammar becomes important, okay? So at opera ad extra, the Latin phrase, which means the external effect, acts of God. Opera means act, okay? Those activities by which the Trinity is manifested outwardly in regard to creation and consummation. 
or uh, creation, redemption, and consummation. The economic trinity is God revealed under the conditions of time, sin, and incarnation when Jesus took flesh. So one of the things we don't want to do is project God's being when discussing attributes. I mean, project doing up to being. It's important, okay, that distinction. Remember last week when we were talking about God's aseity and we were talking about phenomenological language and Jeff wanted to know, well, what does it mean when Jesus wept? That's ad extra. We're not talking about ad extra. We're talking because that was Jesus' human nature, okay? So when we talk about ad intra, those are God in his being. This is number 19 on your handout. So there's complete equality within the ontological trinity, and yet there's clearly an ordering of roles within the economic trinity with the incarnate son taking the position of submission to the father. And this is number 20 on your handout. So as God is one and three, so God acts. This is the doing. God acts as one and three. This is known as the doctrine of inseparable operations. Okay? This teaches that because each of the three persons in the Trinity are one God, each person of the Trinity are, is operative in all of God's external works. Opera ad extra. From creation through redemption to consummation. In other words, the external works of God are undivided. You may have never heard of this before. It's, an, it's important to protect the unity of God, okay? So we must remember that all of God's acts are triune acts, even the ones we typically associate with one of the persons. So the three act in an in indivisible way, but not an indistinct way. There is distinction. And this is number 21 in your handout. And so while the works cannot be divided, they can be distinguished. Distinguishing the acts of the persons from one another is known as the doctrine of appropriation. And if you're doing research on this, you might also see it as the doctrine of mission, okay? The doctrine uh, of, inseparable, of inseparable operations must always be accompanied by the doctrine of appropriations. The two complement one another. You can't talk about doctrine of inseparable operations without the doctrine of appropriations. Now, the doctrine of appropriation helps us understand that each person is involved in everything God does that is appropriate to that person. Okay? Every action of God, ad extra, is from the Father, through the Son, and in the Spirit. Each person exercises the same divine attributes but each does so in a manner fitting to his unique personal properties. This is 22 in your handout. For example, the incarnation is of the Son. It's attributed to the Son, okay? It's appropriated in Scripture. But it is by the Trinity, okay? That's the doctrine of inseparable operations. That is, Father, Son, and Spirit brought about the incarnation of the Son, the three persons of the Trinity effect this work of incarnation, but only one person truly puts on the flesh. So in the incarnation of the Son alone, the Son is not alone. 
Everything about the reality of the incarnation was worked by the one God in three persons. Herman Bavink says, all God's outward works are common to the three persons. God's works add extra. See how important it is to learn this stuff? Add extra are indivisible, though the order and distinction of the persons is preserved. Reformed theologians would say it like this. The Father justifies effectively. The Son meritoriously. The Holy Spirit applicationally. Another interesting, this is one I just discovered on my own, my own, is the resurrection of Christ is appropriated or attributed distinctly in Scripture to each of the persons. So, for example, the resurrection is attributed to the Father in Acts 2.24. Resurrection is attributed to the Son in John 10.17-18. And to the Holy Spirit in 1 Peter 3.18. But it was Christ that was resurrected. So we, we, we don't want division, but we can have distinction. Uh, classic Trinitarian theology even has a Latin saying. It says, you, and you can Google this if you want, if you can spell it. Opera Trinitatis ad extra sunt indivisia means... The works of the Trinity on the outside are indivisible. So this notion of unity of operation is what distinguishes Christians from tritheists. So just as Father, Son, and Spirit, Holy Spirit are inseparable, so they work inseparably in harmony. This is number 23 in your handout. And once we understand that the persons of the Trinity are not individuals with separate centers of consciousness and will as human persons are, we, mil we realize that the mystery of the Trinity is beyond human comprehension. But we believe it without knowing how it can be, okay? Our contemplation, this side of eternity, will constantly flicker, flicker between the unity and the Trinity of God and eventually we get to the point where it's beyond all human comprehension because there is mystery. And let me tell you, the atheist philosophers hate it when we throw down the mystery card. They hate it, okay? But there is mystery. That's why we say God is incomprehensible. He's ineffable. There's things God just hasn't revealed. And because of that, we believe, him, we believe it by faith. So let's look at a couple of objections to... The first objection is the way we throw down the mystery card. There's mystery. I can't explain it. It's, it's beyond my comprehension. Here's a couple of other objections in answer to the doctrine of simplicity. Some people might complain, well, the doctrine of divine simplicity is not biblical. There's no verse that exp explicitly teaches that God is simple. True. There is no single verse declaring God is simple. But there is a ton of scripture when looked at together shows that it is the only way to coherently hold on to all the Bible's other declarations about God. Catholicism and all the major Protestant confessions declare di divine simplicity. And they do so by looking at scripture verses such as the Lord our God is one in Deuteronomy 6.4. Or 
or there is no God but one in 1 Corinthians 8.6 or in 1 Timothy 2.5 or God is love in 1 John 4.8 or God is light in 1 John 1.5 or God is spirit in John 4.24 or God is a uh, consuming fire in Hebrews 12.29 or God has no variation or shadow due to change in James 1.17 or where it says, I, the Lord, do not change in Malachi 3.6. Or where it says, He gives to all, but receives from none in Acts 17.25. Or where it says, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things in Romans 11.36. So the only way we can hold on to all of these declarations is to, to come up with this concept of divine simplicity and unity. Another objection is, people will say is, well, the simplicity of God is in conflict with his personal triunity. And the answer is, the Trinity represents to us three persons who are not three gods, but one God. And that shows us that the unity of God is to be found in his nature, his essence, and not in the personal relations in that essence, so that there is but one divine nature or essence, one being, one will, one God. By the way, will is a property of essence, not persons. We have simplicity and unity in respect to essence, but trinity in respect to persons. Let's talk about errors, okay? Many, many modern Misunderstandings of the gospel, the trinity, and of God are rooted in a confusion of the doctrine of simplicity. This is number 24 in your handout. That There are two big ditches that people often veer into when talking about the unity and trinity in God. The first is modalism. This is uh, where we have one God with one person with three modes, okay, or drama masks representing each person of the Trinity. Modalism denies the distinction of the three persons in the Godhead. Here, God's a shapeshifter. And by the way, there are three modalism churches, probably more in Las Vegas. It's the uh, United Pentecostal International. And by the way, when you go to their website, they don't say, hey, we're modalists. Man, I mean, you have to dig deep to find out that's their, their core doctrine. But this is one of the errors of not adhering to the doctrine of simplicity. The second error, or the ditch that people veer into, is tritheism, where we have three persons who were three gods. Tritheism denies the unity of the persons in the Godhead because here, each person has a unique, unshared will and center of consciousness. And if there's any unity at all, it's the harmony of a three-man committee. And, you know, people often veer into this ditch without realizing it. You know, I mean, I, I hear it all the time when people are casually talking. And I even read it in Christian books. I think that people have a... It is so hard to talk about who the Trinity is that people want to attribute three unique centers of consciousness, three distinct wills. But that's, that's, not, that's not Christian orthodoxy. It's heretical. So the doctrine of simplicity is critical to guarding Christianity against such heresies. 
A relatively new heretical doctrine known as open theism begins with the attribute of God's love. And then they make him love. So yes, God is love, but the opposite is what they really promote. Love is God. Everything for them is determined by love and all else is trumped by it. So thoughts of wrath, judgment, or justice are pushed to the side or ignored in favor of a God who forgives but never condemns. This is number 25 in your handout. Understanding God's simplicity prevents, prevents people from describing God's nature and essence as one would approach a buffet, picking and choosing those attributes that seem tasteful and passing on those which seem impalatable. And by the way, that's not the only problem with open theism. We're not done with them. We're going to be talking about them in future lessons. Another recent error, even in reform circles, regarding the Trinity is known as the eternal subordination of the Son. You might see it as ESS or EFS, eternal functional subordination. This is where Christ's human will is projected onto his divine will. Okay? So people are saying that Christ ad intra is... um, eternally, functionally subordinate to the Father. That's wrong. The doctrine of divine simplicity refutes that, okay? It's, it's an obvious error because there's only one will in the essence of the eternal God, okay? Where no person is subordinate to the others. This is number 26 on your handout. So it is a common but very bad error to conflate and to project characteristics and attributes of Christ's human nature back onto the eternal divine nature of the Son. This violates simplicity because this action splits and divides the simple essence of God. And today there's just, there's just an onslaught of novel and innovative theology that wants to, to deny that God is simple. And maybe you haven't been touched by it, but let me tell you something. It is just a click away in the internet out there and it is massive it is massive I mean we are struggling to hold on to this doctrine of divine simplicity a lot of the modern evangelical churches it is really hard to tell what they think about the unity or the trinity of God so application why does any of this matter because the doctrine of divine unity and divine simplicity are central to an orthodox Christian confession of the Trinity because it helps us think about the true and triune God in his saving action. It helps us become better readers of Scripture. It helps us to recognize bad theology. And it helps us to worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. This is number 27 on your handout. The doctrine of divine simplicity is that place where God's infinite perfections show themselves to be one where the glorious colors come together in a blinding white, we must affirm that God is one and that he transcends his creation. If God was not simple, he could get stronger or weaker or could discover new truth he did not know before or he could forget knowledge he once possessed. Divine simplicity protects other important components of the doctrine of God, especially divine aseity, which we studied that last week. It protects divine immutability that God cannot fundamentally change. 
So simplicity means that the promise of salvation is unchanging. It's that simple. Okay? So what's at stake if we deny God is simple? The gospel. Simplicity confirms the uniqueness of Christ's mediation in terms of his person and his divine and human natures. And that's why the Nicene Creed was written. I mean, there's, if, you, if you look at all the heresies regarding who Christ is, they are massive. But John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning. Okay, he was God. Then 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the God-man. That is God incarnate, truly God and truly human. So in order to bring reconciliation between God and humanity, the second person of the Trinity united to himself a human nature. The incarnation means that Christ, having two natures and two wills, he has a divine will and a human will, that only he has the qualifications to bring about reconciliation. He represents both sides perfectly. His divine nature is fully divine. It's not just semi-divine, okay? Jesus is God. And a human person who has just a human nature can save no one but himself. But Jesus, who is a divine person, who has a fully human nature, can save all those whom he's chosen to save. Because the divine person is infinite, the merit of his suffering according to his human nature can be applied to as many people as he wants. So, um, the fact that we owe the Son the highest love, reverence, worship, and obedience is light of the fact that he is a partaker of the one divine nature. One divine nature. And so, if you ever hear anybody talking in a way that denies the simplicity of God, which you will hear me do a lot in future lessons, just say to them, dude, don't split the essence. So if you hear me say that in future lessons, it's common when we get to all these other attributes. People want to split that essence, okay? That's all I got. Questions? Yes? Rather than personhood, um, it seems, uh, yeah. It's a, it's a very common error, okay? Sorry, the question was, why exegetically do we associate will with being rather than personhood? It seems like saying that uh, God has three wills is tritheism if we first, only if we first and foremost associate will with I'll, being. I'll tell you why, because it's not commonly taught, Okay. An example to allow people to have this in their mind, this concept of three persons in one being, it's commonly just assumed. In fact, I've even been to, I've been to Christian websites that say God has three wills. But when you look at classical uh, Christian theism, R.C. Sproul, I mean, when you, when you look at this, this, this all the theologians uh, and philosophers God has one will this is I, I understand I understand the tension there but God is one in being okay it's 
It's hard to, I hate to burst your bubble, but that's the way it is. I, I totally get it. Any other questions? Yes. Go ahead, go back there. We'll get you next. So I've been coming to this church for about a half a year, and I don't believe that we've ever recited the Nicene Creed or even the Apostles' Creed. Is there a reason? Uh, I'm not an, a leader in this church, so... Oh. Well, you could I be. Think she says we have, so... <laughs> uh, usually, in my previous churches, we've done the Nicene Creed when we have... Um, communion which was once a month but we okay. do it every well the elders will take that under advisement thank you Shawnee has a question up here Joe and we better make this the last question we're really pushing the envelope here sorry bro what about the three hours on the cross the what the three hours on the cross the three hours on the cross I hate to burst your bubble there was no vacancy in the Trinity during the crucifixion, okay? There is mystery behind the person of God uniting with himself a human nature. Okay, it wasn't, it wasn't his divine nature divided himself to a human person. Okay, the personhood comes from his divine nature. Um, during those three hours, Christ in his human nature as, our, as the mediator between us and God, as the second Adam representing us, took the punishment. And I would say uh, all three persons of the Trinity were active in the wrath that the human nature of, and by the human nature is always associated with his body, okay? What we're doing here is we're popping the hood and we're making things a little understandable and the reason we do this is so that you will recognize heresy when you see it. So no, um, there was, this is why we teach that the nature's indivisible, okay? Even at the crucifixion. Yeah, this is one of the few things I've ever said that was an original thought. Christ received an infinite amount of punishment in a finite amount of time. Thank you, Terry. I think we better close there. Let's pray. Our Father, we uh, thank you that you show yourself and reveal yourself to us in Scripture. We pray that as we learn more about who you are and what you are, um, as complex as it might be, that you would draw us closer to you and that in doing so, that it would change us, Lord, that we would love you more, that we would be more in awe of your glory. And we ask that you um, would bless our understanding of all these things, that you might receive glory, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.